Welcome to the LACNETS podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Yen. I'm the LACNETS Director of Programs and Outreach, as well as a caregiver and advocate for my husband who is living with NET. In each podcast episode, we talk to a NET expert who answers your top 10 questions. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please discuss your questions and concerns with your physician. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the LACNETS podcast. Today's episode is a special one on the top 10 highlights of the 2023 NANET Symposium, which is the annual North American Neuroendocrine Tumor Society Conference, the NET Medical and Scientific Conference that takes place every fall. Patients often wonder about the latest updates from the medical conferences, so we've decided to share this information with the patient community. Our special guest is Dr. Guillaume Pena, also known as Dr. Will Pena. Dr. Pena is a medical oncologist at the Oregon Health and Science University, or OHSU, in Portland, Oregon. He specializes in the care of adults with cancers of the gastrointestinal, GI tract, and neuroendocrine system, or NETS. He is additionally interested and experienced in the management of rare tumors, including pheochromocytomas, paragangliomas, and adrenocortical carcinomas, or ACC. Dr. Pena is actively involved with clinical trials and cancer research to improve survival and the quality of life for cancer patients and to better understand the biology of these disease. He grew up in upstate New York in a French-speaking family, which explains his French name, Guillaume, and Will is the English translation of his name. He spent most of his life on the East Coast before moving out to Portland. He completed his undergrad at Stony Brook University, attended the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, internal medicine at University of North Carolina, followed by a hematology-oncology fellowship at the National Institute of Health, where he trained under our LACNET's friend and medical advisory council member, Dr. Hydera Del Rivero, who is well known to us in the neuroendocrine tumor community and here at LACNET's as well. We had a lot of fun doing last year's Top 10 Nanits podcast, and I'm excited to do it again this year. So welcome, Dr. Pena. And for those who are just meeting you for the first time, would you mind sharing again how you first got interested in neuroendocrine tumors? Absolutely. And thank you so much, Lisa, Heather, the whole LACNEX community. I'm so excited to have the chance to be here and go through the top 10 again. So my journey into the neuroendocrine tumor world, as you mentioned, really started in fellowship at the NIH and through really a fantastic mentor, that being Dr. Del Rivero. Neuroendocrine tumors are just scientifically a fascinating disease. And when you kind of approach it from the medical perspective, there's really few diseases that really work your whole medicine brain so many organ systems involved and it's so complex, but really my time at the NIH and as a fellow working with Dr. Del Rivero, it taught me more than just the disease, it's the patients that I was really excited to treat. It's really unique grouping of patients with just this incredible diversity, more so than their disease, but of the patients themselves. And the experience, each patient is unique. So even though for me, it was initially kind of a scientific interest, getting to where I am now and, and what really still motivates me are the patients that we take care of. So I'm very thankful to be able to join you today. Well, that really warms my heart to hear that it's the patients. It really is all about the patients, and we're so grateful for your heart for patients. So as you and I know, the mission of Nanette's focuses on educating medical professionals, and the events are not open to patients. But there are patients who have said to me, I wish I could be a fly on the wall. So I'm hoping that this podcast allows them to get a taste of that and what happens during those conferences and discussions. So before we get started in the top 10 countdown, let me just ask you what you thought overall of this year's 2023 Nanit Symposium. It was a great conference. What are the chances that it'd be 80 degrees in Montreal in October? It was absolutely beautiful. But the conference itself, lots of great information. Whereas last year's conference, when we had this discussion, it was a lot of new data. I found this year's conference was we're starting to round out the edges a little bit more. There was a lot of practice confirming data. And along with that, there's a lot of this development of an understanding of the biology, the science underlying what we're seeing in neuroendocrine tumors. So really an exciting conference with lots of data shared. Yeah. So there was more clarity. Yeah. So shall we get started? Absolutely. So I wanted to get started actually with outside of the top 10 list, just two honorable mentions, I think two abstracts that generated some discussion that I wanted to mention here. So first was out of the University of Iowa, peptide receptor radionuclide therapy improves survival in patients who progress after resection. So this was a retrospective analysis, again, out of the University of Iowa that looked at patients who underwent debulking resection and then received PRT versus those who did not. 
really unsurprisingly, patients who've had PRRT at the time of progression after resection did a lot better than those who did not. So this isn't necessarily going to change how we treat patients, but it really confirms that this approach is an approach that works. And in patients who can get PRRT after resection, once resection is no longer possible, that that's a really good option for these patients. And then the other honorable mention that I wanted to bring up was a really interesting study by Partelli and many others out of Italy. This was a prospective phase two single arm trial of neoadjuvant peptide receptor radionuclide therapy, ludotherapy, and high-risk pancreas neuroendocrine tumors. So really a novel outside-the-box trial where they were looking at, instead of giving PRT to metastatic disease or with residual disease, looking at giving it before surgery. Now, I don't think that this trial and the results are going to change clinical practice at all, but I wanted to bring it up because we're at the point where we're starting to kind of examine and consider the versatility of some of these really exciting treatments we've developed over the years. Yeah. So two trials that kind of go hand in hand. And you mentioned one was retrospective and one was prospective. Could you also clarify what those terms meant? That's a great question. And this is something I'll be bringing up a lot during this talk. When we talk about retrospective studies, we have a set of data, patients who have been treated for a while, and we look backwards. We're looking at what treatments they were exposed to. What did their tumor look like when we started their treatment? It's really a backward look. You know the results and you're seeing where it came from. Prospective, which is where a lot of our clinical trials that get our new drugs approved, these are looking forward. So you start off with a bunch of patients with a particular disease and you are controlling the exposure or you're controlling the observations and you look forward over time. So as you can imagine, when you have to do all this organization work up front, these tend to be much more difficult to get off the ground. But the prospective data is really what ends up taking the ideas that we generate from retrospective data and applying it in a way that we think can work for patients across the board. Is there one that's better than the other? It's a great question, and they need to work hand in hand. When we talk about data generating ideas, most all of that is going to come from retrospective analysis, our experience working with our patients. But when it comes to actually going through the regulatory process and taking these ideas and changing our standard of care, really requires us to prove that these are more than just ideas and that these represent how things work. And so that's where we have the retrospective idea generating, a retrospective forming our thought process, and then prospective, it's confirming our thought process to apply it to other patients. Oh, that's so helpful. So you picked these two as honorable mention. One was looking back, a retrospective look at PRT improving survival in patients who progressed after surgery from University of Iowa. And the second was looking forward, the prospective single-arm child from Italy for neoadjuvant PRT, so going before surgery. So why did you choose these two as honorable mention? For two different reasons. I think the first one really is a practice-confirming abstract. It's what we're doing already for most patients. Ludothera tends to be the second-line treatment that we use. We have a lot of second-line options, but this suggests that this is a good pairing of treatments, one and then the other. The second one, looking at the neoadjuvant peptide receptor radionuclide therapy before surgery, I don't think it's going to necessarily change practice, but it's showing the versatility and how we're taking the tools that we already have and we're learning how they can be applied to different scenarios, different situations. Ah, so confirming the tools and then seeing new ways to apply them. Exactly. Ah, well, that's so helpful. Well, I'm curious what you thought the number 10 item was. So let's jump into our top 10. At number 10, this was an abstract by Dr. Grewal, also at the University of Iowa, Holden Cancer Center, repeat peptide receptor radionuclide therapy in neuroendocrine neoplasms. This was an interesting retrospective. So again, looking backwards analysis of patients who have been treated with PRRT previously, whose tumors then have progressed since then, and then undergo a second round of PRRT or retreatment with Ludothera. Similar studies have been reported before, but not outside of Europe. This was exciting because this was the first time that we had some data that was being reported on U.S. patients. It described a total of 13 patients previously received PRRT, about 50-50 actually Ludothera and then older Y90 Dodotoc. But the study showed something that we had suspected which is that response rates are lower, so the frequency of actually shrinking the tumor. And when we control the disease with retreatment, it doesn't necessarily last as long, but there's definitely still benefit to be had in retreating patients, even though 
those rates are lower and it doesn't necessarily last as long, still more than half of patients, 60%, had some degree of disease control where their tumor stopped growing or actually shrunk. And on average, that lasted for almost a year. So this does support our current use of retreatment of Lutathera. Even more than that, we have a trial that's open and going to be opening up in more sites, the net retreat trial that's looking at this idea that's been generated by retrospective data and applying it prospectively and seeing if this same benefit can be replicated moving forward. This is exciting. I know this is something that patients often wonder. I've had PRT before. Doesn't mean I can get it again. How long will it last? Should I get it again? And is it safe? So this is really helpful. And as you mentioned, plug for the net retreat trial that I know Dr. Mon Chohan talked about that opened at his site and will be opening in multiple sites. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think anytime there's a chance to participate in a clinical trial, it's both a fantastic option for the treatment of tumors with potentially new agents or new strategies, but also it's advancing our community as a whole. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point. Some people may just be able to get Lutathera without being in the clinical trial. So why go enroll in a clinical trial that is doing the exact same thing or try to seek it out if it's not convenient for a patient? That's a great question. And to a certain extent, we really benefit most from having this robust data that we take patients and we purposefully are looking for what we were talking about before this perspective data. So I think it's really beneficial because we are able to gather the best data in terms of safety, in terms of efficacy by doing clinical trials and looking forward. Now, completely understand that to this point that sometimes it's just not feasible for patients. Clinical trials are not everywhere. They're not always the most easily accessible if patients need treatment sooner rather than later. But this is a really good opportunity for us not only to learn, but also when we're in clinical trials, we're looking at everything on patients. We're really trying to gather as much information on each individual patient as well. So it's a good option, both for the care of the individual patient, but also the community as a whole. Yeah, it's about the community and advancing the field forward and being part of something greater than ourselves. Yeah. Well, thank you for clarifying that and describing how we can be part of a whole of something greater, the greater good. So what's next on your top 10 list? Yeah. So number nine is a pilot study of pembrolizumab and peptide receptor radionuclide therapy for patients with metastatic well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors. So this was the preliminary result of a, again, prospective clinical trials by Dr. Sittleman and Hope at UCSF presented by both of them. And some really important background here is when we talk about pembrolizumab is immunotherapy and immune checkpoint inhibitor. These are really novel drugs that we use in the treatment of cancer. Unlike chemotherapy, where it's directed against the cancer, immunotherapy looks to rev up a patient's own immune system with the goal that it attacks the cancer. Now, these have been really paradigm shifting in many, many cancers. But outside of neuroendocrine carcinomas, immune checkpoint inhibitors have really been, unfortunately, pretty disappointing in neuroendocrine tumors. We haven't seen the same exciting data. So in this context, oftentimes what we start considering is, can we take tumors that seem to not respond to immunotherapies and try to figure out a way to make these immunotherapies work? There's a suggestion that they can be very beneficial. And so this was a small trial, 26 patients, again, at USCSF that looked at combining the standard four cycles of lutathera with concomitant treatment with the immune checkpoint inhibitor pembrolizumab. And this was specifically in grade two, three neuroendocrine tumors with a CHI-67 index of greater than 10%. Wow. I'm really excited that you brought this one up because this is a common question among neuroendocrine tumor patients and the community. What's going on with immunotherapy and does it work and what's the latest in this area? So what did it show? Yeah, so disappointing as it has been previously, it's still worth trying to figure out what combinations, what other ways we may still be able to get benefit in. This is very early reporting of data, but what they described is that actually half of the patients thus far have been on study for greater than 24 weeks and have had actual shrinkage of their tumor. Only three of the 26 patients are actually off study because of the growth of the tumor. So we don't have great data. And oftentimes with immunotherapy, the data that you're looking at, the benefit comes in long-term control of tumor. So we don't have that data just yet, but it's looking like a possibility. It's generating some interesting potential roles for immunotherapy. So it's at least worth asking the question, might there be a role yet for immune checkpoint inhibitors and neuroendocrine tumors? I see. So as you said, a lot of the immunotherapy studies have been disappointing. They haven't really been successful. 
for the neuroendocrine world, but this one is a little bit more optimistic. Yeah, it's a different approach. And I think it's leaving the door open that there's ways that we may still be able to incorporate these in the cares of nets. We like to have open doors. Thanks for sharing this. Yeah. Okay, then what's next? All right. Number eight is, well, this was one of my favorite abstracts, actually, because it's addressing a question that comes up all the time. So this abstract was called the clinical impact of unsuccessful subcutaneous administration of a triotide LAR instead of intramuscular administration in patients living with metastatic neuroendocrine tumors. Really fantastic retrospective studies done by Dr. Kristen and Laurie out of Vancouver, BC. Wow. And if you could explain a little bit more, what is intramuscular and subcutaneous yes. injections and why does this matter? Yeah. So triotide LAR, the injection that we get monthly, was one of the first drugs to prove a progression-free survival benefit across neuroendocrine tumors. Now, this is an injection that can be a little bit tricky to give because it has to be given in the muscle and the gluteal area. So sometimes that means you have to transverse the skin, the subcutaneous tissue, and get into the muscle. We know that not infrequently, the injection, because it's being guided from the outside, doesn't quite make it there. And so it ends up in the subcutaneous tissue. We know that not only from patient experience, but we also know it because then when we repeat imaging, we see these nodules that are in the subcutaneous tissue. And patients all the time will ask the question, hey, if this isn't making it in the muscle where it's supposed to be, am I actually getting any benefit? And for a while, we just kind of shrug and say, maybe, probably, I think so. But this answers the question a little bit better. And so specifically, they looked at patients with evidence of missed IM injections of octreotide as evidenced by subcutaneous nodules seen on CT scan. And retrospectively, so again, looking backwards, compared the survival of patients who had these nodules versus those who didn't. So 45 patients in total had enough imaging to make this comparison. These were gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors, and subcutaneous nodules were actually seen in 44%. So that just tells you how many patients this comes up with. Reassuringly, the answer from this is that progression-free survival was statistically no different between both groups. So those who had evidence of subcutaneous injection versus those with evidence of appropriate IM injection. This is perhaps one of the most practical abstracts. As you said, 44%, almost half of people got those nodules or had evidence of the nodules in the fat tissue. So as patients have shared, this is really, really common. And you really hit the nail on the head with this really meaningful question. Does it matter? And does it mean that I've missed the dose or I'm not getting the effect? And so I think the take home here is that the suggestion from the study is, no, it won't affect your survival. What it doesn't answer is, those patients who have carcinoid syndrome, the diarrhea, the flushing that we oftentimes see typically with small intestine nets, there's been suggestion in the past that these missed IM or missed intramuscular injections may actually have less control for those symptoms. This doesn't answer that question, unfortunately, but we think probably in other patients where we're looking more at the tumor control that it's likely equivalent. Okay. Thanks for that clarity. So we don't know if it makes a difference with symptom control. That leads exactly. with, with tumor control, with slowing or stopping the progression of the tumor. Exactly. Well, that's reassuring. Gives peace of mind. Thanks for that. So what's number seven? Number seven. So this is chromogranin as a surveillance biomarker in patients with carcinine. So they called this the CASPER trial. But the way I think about it myself, a better title would be return of the chromogranin A or chromogranin A strikes back. <laughs> that's hilarious. So chromogranin A, I think within the last 10 years, it's come and come out of favor and then back in favor. So chromogranin A is used, potentially used, I should say, as a tumor marker, usually for small intestine neuroendocrine tumors, but others may produce chromogranin A. The reason why it's really fallen out of favor is that there's a sense of a lack of utility of the test in terms of actually tracking a tumor. So when we talk about tumor markers, the ideal tumor marker is something that we can detect. And it's something that we think that if the tumor is doing well or growing, tumor doing well, not necessarily the patient, of course, then we think the tumor marker goes up. If the tumor is being treated or dying, and hopefully the patient is doing well, then the marker would go down. That's the ideal tumor mark. And with chromogranin, we've had a hard time proving whether that's actually the case. Very unpredictable, very temperamental nature. It depends what medications you're taking. It depends what time of day, what you've eaten. It tends to really freak patients out, and most of the time unnecessarily. So this was a prospective looking forward study, observational clinical trial, where they use a very specific chromogranin A, this industry assay, hoping to see if they could monitor for disease progression in a population where they really tried to control 
the confounding factors or the things that could affect the chromogranin and AB kind of other disease processes or other medications. And so patients were followed for 36 months. And what they called a positive test was an increase in chromogranin A by 50% in over 100 nanograms per milliliter. So that is the definition of a positive test. Anything below that was a negative. Okay. So if it doubled or if it's more than 100. It had to be at least 100 and it had to be 50% greater than it was previously. Ah, at least 100 and greater. Exactly. This is good information that we haven't had very much of before. The short version of the results here, though, is that a positive test doesn't really mean very little. You're kind of a little bit more 50% chance that a positive test shows that your tumor is growing. But there is a potential utility here is that a negative test can be reassuring that the tumor is not progressing. The number reported here is the negative predictive value, which sounds complicated, but it means if you have a negative test, so you don't have this increase of 50% or greater, if you don't have that, then 85% of those patients, if you do a CT scan at that moment in time, will not have progression. So is there a role for chromogranin A in that case, potentially? Specifically, if we have limitations on imaging, if we're trying to limit the radiation exposure and we want reassurance, perhaps, that the tumor isn't growing. But patients really need to be counseled carefully that an increase in their chromogranin A doesn't mean that all is lost, that their tumor is growing either. Wow, this is another practical abstract, just like the last one where you can give peace of mind for a really frequently asked question. Yeah. So if I'm understanding this correctly, the value of it is in the negative test. Exactly. Not what you would expect. A positive test, not hugely helpful. A negative test, you can feel pretty good that the tumor isn't progressing radiographically at least. Okay. So it might still raise questions when there's abnormal or higher numbers, but at least with the negative numbers, we can rest assured and have some peace of mind. Yeah. There just really needs to be a good discussion with providers and patients about what to expect with these stats. Yeah. Thank you. And that provides a little bit more clarity on how to interpret it. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, well, I'm curious what number six is after that one. So for number six, we've gotten used to really great oral presentations by Tania Altuba and Dr. Strasberg out of Moffitt. And this year was no exception. So for number six, we have the association of long-term PPI use with low-risk gastric neuroendocrine tumors. So this abstract looked at the potential association that's been suspected really for a while between some of the most common anti-reflux medications. These are used by millions and millions of patients across the U.S. nationally. PPIs, it includes omeprazole, pantoprazole, Nexium, they're over-the-counter, so really easily accessible. And the association between the long-term use of these drugs in gastric or stomach neuroendocrine tumors within the population of neuroendocrine tumors is one of the fastest-growing subgroups. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because a lot of times we don't talk about gastric nets, and we did recently have an episode on gastric nets with Dr. David Metz, but this is an area of need for sure. Yeah, and it is, I absolutely agree, an area of need, and we're still learning about these different subtypes. And I think this study makes us realize that our knowledge base for gastric neuroendocrine tumors is still growing. So what they found is that in patients with normal levels of the hormone gastrin, so that excludes two of the three typically thought of types of neuroendocrine tumors of the stomach. But if you look at those patients specifically with normal gastrin levels, long-term PPI use seem to be associated with a separate subtype of gastric net. So usually we have historically thought of normal gastrin levels, gastric net is consistent with a type 3, which tends to be more aggressive, higher risk of metastases. But there seems to be a group of these who have had exposure to PPIs for a long time that although they look like type 3, they display much less aggressive behavior and substantially lower risk of metastases. So it seems to be that type 3 gastric neuroendocrine tumors may actually be split into two different subtypes here with different behaviors and different risk factors. Yeah. And so with this, the long-term PPI use was with which type of gastric net? So this is, by definition, with normal gastrin levels, it's what we would call type 3, but it doesn't fit the mold of a type 3. There's perhaps maybe a type 4 gastric neuroendocrine tumor that looks like a type 3, but it's within the context of long-term PPI or, again, those anti-reflux medication exposure. I see. A brand new category. Exactly. I know this question came up during the Q&A, and this is something common, right? You're talking about common drugs, these PPIs, omeprazole, Prilosec, Protonix, Prevacid. I know I'm on one. So does that mean I should stop taking it if I'm at risk or I'm worried about developing gastric nets? 
That's a great question. That exact question, very similar wording was brought up. I don't think that this is a reason to stop taking a PPI necessarily. It is a discussion to have with your physician because oftentimes these medications get started with the intention of them being short-term and they end up being long-term unexpectedly just because nobody thinks of really stopping them and they work. But there's other alternatives. Now, again, I wouldn't suggest making any changes without talking to your doctor, but it is a interesting topic to bring up that maybe these aren't completely without long-term side effects and that we should be considering these as possibilities. And it's always good to have something to remind you to ask questions and advocate for yourself. Always, if you're on a medication for a long time and you're not sure you need it, it's a great question to ask your doctor. And just being aware of the potential risks that we know. Well, this helps to be more informed in our decisions and in what we're taking. And also rest assured that it's not like the other type of gastric nip. Yes. And I should say, if the risk was high of the development of these gastric neuroendocrine tumors, considering the millions and millions and millions of patients who have been on these drugs for more than a decade, we'd be seeing a whole lot more gastric nets than we are. So I think the risk remains extremely low. Yeah. Do we know how low that risk is? We don't. It's hard to give the exact number. But again, in the context of you probably have 100 million, if not a billion patient life years while being exposed to these drugs. And we're not seeing 5 million patients with gastric neuroendocrine tumors yearly. So you have to assume that it's very, very low. Okay, that's reassuring. So now we're about halfway through. Number five. Number five. So this is an abstract that comes out from Dr. Amr Mohammed, a case Western surgical cytoreduction reduction versus systemic therapy in patients with metastatic gastroenteropancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. So this abstract compared retrospectively, so again, we're looking at patients who have already gotten their treatment and we're looking back at their treatments. The outcomes of patients with metastatic GAPNET, so GAP being the gastroenteropancreatic inclusive of stomach, intestine, pancreas, treated initially with surgery or some combination of surgery plus systemic therapies versus those treated with systemic therapies alone. When I'm talking about systemic therapies, I mean anything that's pills, IV treatments, chemotherapy, PRT. So this is looking at surgery versus... Surgery versus kind of these systemic therapies, comparing how patients did with this initial approach to their care. Now, big word of caution to start, and this applies to essentially all of our data evaluating the subject of surgery versus anything else. In these retrospective studies looking at surgery, all have some degree of inherent bias. If you think back of the patients who were offered surgery versus those who were not offered surgery... There's the question of, were they just not healthy enough to get surgery? Were their tumors more advanced in a way that surgery wasn't necessarily offered to them? So there's this inherent bias in these studies that you always need to consider. But in the absence of better data, these analyses are helpful, at least in supporting how we practice. Really good point. So what did it show? Yeah. So what it showed is that upfront cytoreductive surgery with or without some sort of systemic therapy, again, done sort of initially, but surgery being the backbone was associated with really a much significantly improved overall survival compared to those patients who went on to systemic therapies alone. Looking at where patients got their surgery treatment at academic hospitals seemed to be a result in overall better survival outcomes compared to community-based hospitals. But what I think this overall kind of together supports is that if you can get surgery, you probably should. That's likely the important determination itself is whether it's a surgery is tolerable and would potentially be effective in addressing the tumor. And then the other thing, academic versus community is less a question. I think it's important to go somewhere that does a lot of neuroendocrine tumor surgeries. And so on LACNETs, NANETs, NETRF, there's lots of resources to find out what some of those places are. This is a really good point. And this also supports a really common question. I'm sure you're here and that just comes up in the net patient community as well about surgery and should you have surgery, should you have surgery first? And if I've been told that I'm not surgical, should I get another opinion? So really confirming for patients the value of trying to get surgery or getting a couple opinions to really confirm that you really truly are or are not a surgical candidate. I completely agree. And I think this is somewhere where patient advocacy, patient groups play such an important role because I kind of imagining as a patient with this new diagnosis and Hearing from a person of authority, a doctor saying, nope, surgery is not an option. It takes a lot to feel empowered to say, hey, I want to get another opinion. I want to get someone else's thoughts. It's not an easy thing to do, but it is really important, especially in the neuroendocrine tumor world. I feel like it's particularly important. Yeah, it's really helpful, as you said, to get an opinion from someone who does a lot of it. 
I think the term that I would use more is like rather than academic versus community is high volume versus somewhere that doesn't see neuroendocrine tumors very often. It's really ideal and this very unique tumor to go somewhere where there's some experience in treating these. Someone who sees a lot of net every day. So with that, what is your top number four? Yeah. So for top four, I want to give a disclaimer that I'm cheating a little bit moving forward as there was just a lot of great data presented and there were certain topics specifically where we had a lot of different abstracts presented. And so moving forward, I'm actually combining a few abstracts within the overall umbrella of four topics. First amongst these topics is the disease that we consider part of our wider net family, and that is eochromosatomas or paragangliomas, and two really important perspective trials that were presented at this year's meeting. Great. A shout out to pheochromocytomas and paragangliomas. I know that the Pheopara Alliance and our Pheopara friends will be excited to hear this. Yeah, and they had some really great data presented. So the first of these out of MD Anderson, Dr. Camila Jimenez, the Natalie trial, phase two clinical trial of cabozantinib in patients with unresectable and progressive metastatic pheochromocytoma or paraganglioma. So this was a phase two trial looking at how well a drug is working using cabozantinib 60 milligrams. Cabozantinib is a type of drug called the tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It affects blood vessel formation and different pathways within the tumor cells themselves. The primary endpoint was looking at something we call objective response rate or how frequently we have significant shrinkage of tumor in response to the treatment. So jumping into the results, relatively small study, 17 patients, this is a very rare disease, but importantly, 94% of patients benefited from this treatment. And the objective response rate or significant shrinkage was seen in a order of patients, 25%. So really some good data here. And we deal with also a lot of issues and POs and paras with blood pressure control related to the release of adrenaline and other hormones. And across the vast majority of patients, blood pressure was improved and stabilized. And the progression-free survival, so how long patients lived without their tumors growing, was 16 approaching 17 months. That's really exciting. It seemed to help these patients. What's really interesting is not only these treatments seem to work, but they seem to work irrespective of underlying genetic changes, as we know that some of these tumors are associated with genetic changes that have made them less sensitive to some of our treatment options. This is a developing effective treatment option for really an understudied disease. That's really exciting. I know that there's limited options. It's a rare disease, and this is really heartening. This is really encouraging information, especially given some of the changes recently with the treatments available for FIPS and para. Absolutely agree. And this brings us to our second part within this topic, which is another prospective trial that the first data was described at the conference. So it's a phase two trial of Ludothera in metastatic or inoperable POs in Paris out of the NIH led by Dr. Frank Lin, looking at Ludothera in the same patient population, very early study results of this prospective phase two trial. And the primary endpoint was a little bit different than the last trial. What they were trying to look at is, again, this progression-free survival, or how long will a patient live without their tumor growing while they're on treatment on average? And what did it show? So 36 patients evaluated for both safety and efficacy. They included cohorts of patients with those genetic changes that I mentioned previously, as well as those without. And it met its primary endpoint with a progression-free survival across all groups of 21 months. Now, really importantly, is they also reported safety data, which is always important to consider whenever we talk about these treatments. And there's this kind of novel concept of this catecholamine release syndrome. So as I mentioned, these tumors have a tendency to release catecholamines, which are stress hormones, adrenaline-like. And this is something that they did see with treatment with Ludothera. And it was actually quite serious in 10% of patients that at least suggests as we move forward with this treatment, specifically some patients that are higher risk may really require close observation during treatment. So both of these drugs, cabozantinib and Ludothera, it showed safety and efficacy, so it could be a helpful treatment for FIAs and paras. Yeah, this is a disease that we need more tools in our toolkit. So these are really great results to be getting. Yeah, this is really helpful, as you mentioned. Tools in the toolkit. We like that. Okay, so now we're down to three. What is number three? Three. So this next topic is pretty hot area of research in the net world, and it involves one of the things that patients are most concerned about with PRT and that's the occurrence of blood count abnormalities, the development of MDS, which is like a pre-blood cancer and AML after getting PRT. 
So this is one of the main side effects that patients worry about when we talk about treatment with PRRT. So common. I'm so glad you're addressing this. I know last year we talked about it a little bit with some of the abstracts that came out and the data was a little bit concerning, if not distressing. Yeah, it is. And it's just very helpful as we learn how to use these treatments, what patients may be high risk so that we can at least also have these conversations with patients, which is so important to kind of do this treatment journey together and be very upfront when we talk about the potential risks and benefits. The first abstract within this category was a prospective study looking at the prevalence of something called clonal hematopoiesis in neuroendocrine tumor patients prior to ludothera treatment. This was from Dr. Sanbal, the Mayo Group, and it's looking at this complex topic called clonal hematopoiesis. And what that really means is you have blood cells that are dividing, typically in your bone marrow. And over time, some of these can develop these genetic changes. So these changes in these blood cells don't necessarily cause problems, but they kind of develop over time. And Dr. Sambal was interested in looking at whether the presence of these changes can predict blood count changes after receiving PRRT. Yeah, I saw this one too. And I was along the poster tour when he was giving the presentation to the poster tour group. And I thought this was really fascinating as well. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, he looked at 37 patients. Nearly half of them had these abnormal mutations or clonal metapoiesis before getting PRRT. So it tells you it's quite common. These patients were followed for an average of 16 months after PRRT initiation, which isn't a terribly long time. And so expectedly, none of them developed MDS or AML. But what he did find is that patients with these abnormalities that were seen beforehand were statistically more likely to experience prolonged low platelets after PRRT versus those that didn't. So it does suggest to us that there may be a role in what's going on in the bone marrow for patients treated with PRRT that we may be able to detect some of the patients who are at higher risk of complications. And it would be so exciting if we could predict that, right? Absolutely. It would be very helpful. Yeah. So you're saying this is a blood test. Yeah. So when we talk about kind of clonal hematopoiesis, really, we want to know what's going on in the bone marrow. Some of these things can be detected via blood tests, but some of these patients actually after their PRT, three of them underwent a bone marrow biopsy, which is more intensive and in looking at the actual place where these cells are being produced. And two of these three patients had actually developed these changes of unknown significance, as well as mutations that were seen in their blood cells in a gene called PPM1D. So definitely more studies are needed. This is very early, but this suggests that we may be starting to understand a little bit more and carve out the understanding of why some patients are at risk of this and if others may not be. That would be exciting if we could find something out, if we can uncover more information about this and be able to have some predictor. Completely agree. Yeah. And so the next abstract actually on this similar topic is also out of Mayo, but this time the colder, more northern one, Dr. Fritzel and, and Kim. And this was myeloid dysplasia and leukemia instances after PRT experience from a tertiary institution. So it was a single center analysis evaluating the spectrum of therapy-related blood disorders or clonal cytopenias in neuroendocrine tumor patients who have gotten PRRT, looking kind of across the board at blood count changes that develop after PRRT. So when they look at their 346 patients who had gotten at least one dose of PRRT, about 2.5% were noted to have an established diagnosis of some sort of therapy-associated blood disorder or clonal abnormality in their blood counts. And interestingly, in supporting something that we talked about last year, is that 50% of these patients who had one of these abnormalities had also had exposure to an alkylating chemotherapy agent such as temozolomide. So suggesting that the interplay between these two may be quite prevalent. Yeah. Thanks for tying in that study from last year. And if you could just kind of recap what that study was last year. Yeah. So last year, there was an oral presentation out of Moffitt that discussed the concern about MDS and AML after PRT, as well as capecitabine and temozolomide. So we think that it's maybe 1% or 2% after PRT, maybe 1% or 2% after capecitabine and temozolomide. But what was discussed last year is that if you actually combine the two, if you have sequential treatment of one and then the other, either direction, the retrospective analysis raised alarm bells that it may be much higher, somewhere even between 8 and 10% risk. Now, again, this was a retrospective analysis. This is idea generating. It makes us aware of this as a possibility, but it definitely got a lot of people thinking about how to time these medications if there's a potential long-term effect of having both. Now, in a lot of cases, 
this is still the best choice, even if a patient has had PRRT and they need chemotherapy. The best choice is still to treat the cancer that exists rather than worry about the one that doesn't. But it just lets us know a little bit what patients may be at higher risk. Really good point. Treat the cancer that exists rather than the one that doesn't. And if you could, I just have a basic question again. What is myelodysplasia and what is AML and what does this mean? So myelodysplastic syndrome and AML are thought to be within the same spectrum of diseases of blood cancer involving white blood cells. So myelodysplastic syndrome has more to do with production of blood cells that seems to sort of slow down, become ineffective. We start noticing abnormalities in certain blood cell types. It can actually progress or become acute myelogenous leukemia. So when one of these cells becomes a little bit detached from its usual growth, stimulating and restricting factors and can cause actual leukemia or blood cancer. So myelodysplastic syndrome or MDS, is that cancer in and of itself? It's a great and complex question. It is thought to be somewhere between a precancerous condition and an early cancer in and of itself. It gets really complicated because you have high risk versus low risk and you have a lot of treatments for MDS that don't involve chemotherapy, but then it's a spectrum of disease really. Yeah. Okay. So going back to these abstracts, I know the last one you were talking about the possible predictors with that bono hemopoiesis. I heard them say chip in another presentation, yeah. but the chip test. And then this one too, about experience from Mayo. Yeah. So this is just our Understanding is just developing more, both of potential risk factors beforehand, but then also understanding a little bit more about what it can look like afterwards as well. So what are some of the genetic changes that we see? What are some of the genetic changes after PRRT specifically? And trying to figure out what those pathways are and are those something that we could potentially address in the future? Yeah, I don't know if you described this, but how long did it take to start seeing those changes? On average, from the second abstract that was presented, the median time from first PRT to the development of some sort of hematologic malignancy or clonal cytopenia with this abnormality in the blood counts for a prolonged period of time, 18 and a half months. Now, the range is huge from eight months to 42 months, but within a couple of years after treatment, it is likely the time period that we see this. Okay, so knowing to be aware of when it might show up. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Pena, this sounds a little scary to me as someone supporting someone living with NETS. What is the take-home message you want me to take away from this? It is scary, but it's also defining a problem that exists. So this is the case of having more information is better. As we start learning what patients may be at risk, what screening might be needed, and what are the pathways. So for current patients, as we're already thinking about this, it teaches us what to look out for and how to best surveil patients. But For patients in the future, as we start learning, what are the risk factors? Are there combinations of drugs that for some reason maybe don't play as well together? Can we somehow avoid those for as long as possible and go down a different pathway? Especially as we develop new drugs that work through different mechanisms, are there ways of dividing treatment up to minimize the potential interactions of drugs over the long term? Uh, As you said, how to use the tools in the toolbox. Exactly. Yeah. As you said, rounding out the edges, bringing more clarity to all of us. It is. And I don't think any of this is worth causing panic or alarm because it's more we're just trying to understand why this happens and figure out how we can help the most. And are there things that we can do for patients now and in the future? Okay. So if you were my doctor, you're telling me not to get too into the weeds about this. Exactly. This doesn't change any of the risk factors that were talked about before treatment started. This is just defining what those things look like better. Uh, Okay. Well, that's reassuring. And thanks for putting it into perspective. So what's number two after that one? Number two. So number two is on a different topic, but also a big topic of research right now, which is about grade progression in tumors. There were about five or six abstracts dedicated to this subject. It just tells you it's something that a lot of people are looking into. And when I talk about grade progression, what I mean by that is that neuroendocrine tumors are really a unique tumor. There's just not many other cancers where people can have this for 20 years. And sometimes what we see is a tumor that's been behaving a certain way for a long, long time, but starts behaving a little bit differently. And what we've suspected for a while is that if this behavior changes, that maybe the grade of the tumor may have changed as well from if it was especially a lower grade tumor, that it may over time become higher grade doesn't happen that frequently, but it is really a topic of intense research right now. Okay. So while it's rare, I know this is something the patients are also very concerned about. Yeah. And it tells you that we're dealing with a somewhat moving target sometimes. Now, this moving target moves over years and years and years, but 
we're learning more how to track these tumors and that they can change. So jumping into the topic, the first abstract was out of Dr. McLaughlin and Heft Anderson at Mayo. This was transformation of low intermediate grade neuroendocrine tumors into high grade morphology. This was a retrospective analysis looking at patients initially diagnosed with lower grade disease who transformed into grade three neuroendocrine tumors on subsequent biopsies. What they found is they had a total of 25 patients who actually underwent this transition. Of those 25 patients, the overwhelming majority were actually pancreas neuroendocrine tumors, so 70%. What they found looking at these patients is that patients who went from lower intermediate grade into grade 3 neuroendocrine tumors, so maintaining the neuroendocrine tumor pathology, most of them, almost 90%, had grade 2 disease. So it was a transition from grade 2 to grade 3. Much less common was grade 1 to grade 3. But in the very few patients, the six patients where they transformed into a neuroendocrine carcinoma, it didn't really matter whether it was grade one or grade two. It's very infrequent across all groups, but about 50-50 whether they had grade one or grade two disease initially. Wow. So this looked over like 23 years, a really long period of time. Yeah, over an extensive period of time. And it just tells you that there's not that many patients who transition from low intermediate grade into grade three or above. Okay. And what was the take home from this particular abstract? I mean, the take home from here is that when they looked at the outcomes of patients, when this transformation does happen, unfortunately, the outcomes match more the higher grade disease. And so what's really important for us as providers is that when we see this transition, that we need to say that this is the new grade that we're treating. But this is just something to be aware of. If the tumor has been acting one way for a very long time, and all of a sudden we start thinking it's acting a different way, maybe worth re-biopsying, re-evaluating what we're dealing with. Recognizing when it's time to sprint. Exactly. And the next study that actually pairs well with this first one was posted by Dr. Stephanie Wang and Dr. Emily Berglund at UCSF. This was predictors of low to high grade progression in pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. So really looking at a very similar topic here. So this was a retrospective analysis, similarly looking at 66 patients who were initially low grade disease for whom we had multiple biopsies available. In 23 of those 66 patients, again, this is a small subgroup of patients where we have lots of biopsies, 23 of them showed progression to high-grade disease. And then they tried to look back what are some of the factors that may have predicted this transition from low-grade to high-grade. And there were really three that came out. And what was that? So those three were patients that had this transition from low to high-grade were significantly more likely to demonstrate some heterogeneity on their initial dotate PET scan. So where we have some tumors that light up really brightly and others that don't light up quite as bright on the initial dotate-directed PET scan. They were also patients who attended to receive multiple lines of treatment, which makes sense. It's kind of exposure to more agents over time can affect the biology of the tumor. And then this one is a chicken before the egg, is that they were more likely to have had a change in disease behavior that triggered the biopsy. So the tumor started acting strange, and so we decided that we needed to rebiopsy. More frequently, those patients were the ones where we saw this transition from low grade to high grade. Ah, so what does this mean? Yeah, so these results as a whole at least suggest that the behavior of these tumors that we see as we go over oftentimes many years, if not decades of treatment, the behavior of these tumors can tell us a little bit what are the risks of this grade progression occurring. Again, conforming and helping us have a better understanding with regards to the actual management of patients over the long term. Yeah, you mentioned heterogeneity. Can you explain a little bit about that and why that's important? When neuroendocrine tumors have been the poster child for a lot of advancements in the cancer world, then dotate PET scan was really one of those big ones. The idea behind a dotate PET scan or a somatostatin-directed PET imaging is that we have imaging agents that are able to home in on the somatostatin receptor, which is expressed by many neuroendocrine tumors, and light up, showing us really specifically where the tumors are. Now, neuroendocrine tumors, what we see is the lower grade, grade one, grade two, tend to have higher expression of the somatostatin receptor rather than high grade. So when we're talking about the heterogeneity on a dotate PET scan, patients who, when they undergo their dotate scan, they have some tumors that light up really strongly, showing lots of somatostatin receptors, and other tumors that don't light up quite as strongly that show significantly less. And so that's what we mean by heterogeneous or this mixed imaging presentation versus homogenous, if everything is lighting up, those showed a lower association of the transition from low to high grade. 
And what does the heterogeneity mean? So some spots are really bright and some spots aren't so bright. What does it mean about the tumors? So it's thought to reflect the density of these somatostatin receptors on these tumors. And since we think the more these neuroendocrine tumors, the more similar they are to the original neuroendocrine cell, the more somatostatin receptors they will have, it gives us some information about the behavior of the tumors in that regard. Thanks for explaining that. So a little bit more information about how to predict the behavior of these tumors that are changing. Absolutely. And again, so much of this treatment oftentimes is a marathon and we get to know our patients so well and we get to collect all of this information over a prolonged period of time. It helps us to start learning what are some of those pieces of data that should perk our ears, get our attention going. That's something that we need to change to a spread. Yeah. The more we know, the better we can make exactly. this position. So Dr. Pena, the last two, number three, number two, there were a lot of hard data there, maybe some heavy pills to swallow. So I guess before we move to number one, what would you say the take home is from there? Yeah, so we're learning more information and we want the good news along with the challenges that we're facing so that we know what those challenges are and we can start working on addressing those challenges. We're learning what those challenges are so that we can move forward on addressing them. But the good news is, is we're moving forward in so many ways in both addressing those challenges and addressing some others. So a lot of cause for optimism as well. Well, I hope so. And with that, I'm very curious what you have for number one. Yeah, so for number one is another topic of a lot of interest. And this is considering the use of a treatment class called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, inclusive of the oral medications sunitinib, lenvatinib, and cabozantinib. We both had some very interesting data presented at the conference, but also kind of feeds into some other exciting news that we have here in the neuroendocrine tumor world. And before you get into those abstracts, could you explain again what the tyrosine kinase inhibitors are? Absolutely. So tyrosine kinase inhibitors, these are, of course, a mouthful, so we can shorten them to TKIs. These are drugs that target both the blood vessel formation into tumors, but also affect multiple pathways within the tumor cell itself. Generally, these are oral medications that are taken daily, most commonly, and they affect both those mechanisms for tumors in terms of affecting tumor development and growth. Wow, sounds complicated. It is, and it's been a really big area of interest ever since sunitinib was approved, gosh, nearly a decade ago at this point, the first TKI approved in neuroendocrine tumors. And so if we could clarify, are these chemotherapy drugs? So that's a great question. These are not chemotherapies. These are really targeted therapies. We have a specific pathway or mutation or otherwise that we are sending in drugs to really target and affect that pathway. These are outside of the chemotherapy world. These are targeted drugs. So very different side effect profile than chemotherapy. Okay. So not chemotherapy, targeted agent, class is called TKIs. Sunitinib is not new. And we're talking about some new additional pills. Exactly. Sunitinib has been around for a long time, but there's a lot of interest in using these newer, updated versions of TKI. So the first abstract is out of Mayo Clinic, Dr. Riley Schnell, Dr. Heft Anderson. So this cabozantinib as salvage therapy for well-differentiated grade 3 neuroendocrine tumors. This was a retrospective analysis looking at cabozantinib being used in patients who had received multiple treatments prior to that point, so really advanced, heavily treated tumors. And they came across a total of five patients, four of which had pancreas neuroendocrine tumors, all of which had already gotten CAPTEM, PRT, most of them had already gotten Everlimus, and just these multiple lines of therapies and saying, well, is there anything that could potentially work in this setting and, and testing cabozantinib in that case specifically? And what they found is that actually four patients had really a significant response to treatment and the fifth patient has actually not yet had imaging follow-up. So it's possible that all five patients have, in spite of their heavily treated disease, that they could still have a response to cabozantinib. And these were grade three neuroendocrine tumors, heavily pretreated. And it suggests that even when we're talking about advanced cancers with few treatments left, that these targeted therapies, different than anything else really that we use, may still have a really good and defined role. That's exciting, especially for G3Net. Absolutely. And then the other abstract in this category is looking at a related TKI called lenvatinib. So this was real-world evidence of lenvatinib use for treatment of metastatic neuroendocrine neoplasms, a retrospective analysis of 34 patients across Canada treated with lenvatinib for neuroendocrine tumors by Dr. Vasconcelos in British Columbia. So 
Munvatnin, we've talked about before, tested in the talent trial. It showed really promising efficacy. Unfortunately, for clinical trial design reasons, it hasn't gone through the FDA approval process, but it's a drug that has shown a lot of promise for the treatment of neuroendocrine tumors. Yeah, we like drugs that are showing promise. So why did you choose these two as number one? I think one piece of the second abstract that was important is the talent trial actually used 24 milligrams of lenvatinib, which is any provider who uses these medications will tell you that's a difficult dose to tolerate. But the median initial and maximal doses of lenvatinib used in this trial were 12 and 12 milligrams, so half the dose. But what they found is that nearly 90% of patients had either disease shrinkage or stabilization with the treatment with lenvatinib and a median progression-free survival. Again, the amount of time living without the tumor growing approached a year. Uh, It was 10 months, and this was very much real-world data across clinics, academic and non-academic, and seeing how well it works. The reason why I picked these as number one is that they're very timely, as we recently had data coming out of the cabinet trial looking specifically at the first drug I talked about, cabozantinib. The trial was recently stopped because of positive results which are very exciting because it was also looked across neuroendocrine tumors, pancreatic, non-pancreatic, and anywhere. The data was shared recently at ESMO, and we're hopeful that this is going to go through the regulatory process and be another option available for neuroendocrine tumor patients in the future. This is really pivotal, right? Could you explain again what the cabinet trial is? Yeah, so the cabinet trial was looking at cabozantinib, a prospective trial compared to placebo in patients with neuroendocrine tumors and really inclusive of a wide range of neuroendocrine tumors. So it's a really well-designed multinational trial that is looking like the results are pretty good at this point. This is really, really exciting. As you know, Dr. Pena, I had the privilege of being able to attend ESMO and hear the results live and interview Dr. Jennifer Chan. And I can tell you, it was a packed room. Everyone's cameras are out. It was like one of the most anticipated sessions of all of ESMO, and the energy was just electric. I can imagine. I just really fantastic data that a lot of people have been waiting for for a long time. And she shared that the trial's been open over five years, you know, multiple sites, multiple centers, about 200 patients. So this is a huge work, right? A phase three trial. Mm-hmm. So the kind that we are looking for when we're looking at really getting the best data. So these big trials only come out every few years, so it's always something we really look forward to. And we're very thankful for all the work and the patients who participate. And as I mentioned at the beginning, these clinical trials are how we move things forward. Yeah. And it's exciting, you said, right? It's for a wide range of nets, so that includes lung. Yeah. We've always wonder about lung and different grades as well. Yeah. So you said this is really exciting. There's very few big trials and big announcements like this. What makes this so big? I think one of the biggest things is what you just mentioned is that they looked at cabozantinib across neuroendocrine tumor types. I think one of the things that's really most exciting about this trial is the versatility and how inclusive this trial was. So often we have trials or treatment regimens that are limited to be it pancreas or gastroenteropancreatic or otherwise. And this really is potentially offering a treatment with data across all the neuroendocrine tumor subtypes and and patients who may have a few other treatments available. So I think this is going to potentially be a game changer, which is great. Yeah, it shows safety and efficacy, even for those who are happily pre-treated, up to seven lines of therapy. And it's one of the benefits of when something is its own class of treatment, a targeted treatment versus chemotherapy versus PRRP really addressing the cancer in a very different way, which is a big positive. A game changer because it addresses it in a different way. So what's next? What should the patients be waiting for next? Yeah, there is a lot going on right now. And I think last year we were pretty excited talking about the cabinet trial that was going to hopefully give us some information. Now we have alpha emitter trials that are open nationally here at OHSU are just about to open the raised bio trial looking at the alpha emitters. There is the retreatment trial with Lutathera that's opening nationally. I just think the number of trials and the number of approaches to treatment are just expanding, and it's a really exciting time to be involved in this. Yeah, lots happening, lots of excitement, lots of hard work and dedication. Absolutely. So what would you say that patients could be hopeful for? There's a lot to be hopeful for. Whereas we would have started 10, 15 years ago with very few treatment options, where we're at now, we have many more treatment options and we have more coming down the line that remains a need and it's a need that's being addressed. But now we're really learning how do we use the treatments that we have. 
what is the order? What are certain patients that may be at risk for some of the side effects of the treatments that we have? Starting to not only have the toolkit, but also learning how to use the toolkit has been a big advancement, but I wouldn't leave it at that because the toolkit is also expanding rapidly, probably more rapidly than any time in the past. So there's a lot of things coming down the pipeline and it's an exciting time to be involved in this. Yeah, a clearer, expanding, more robust toolkit with lots of people working to expand the toolkit. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing the top 10, for joining us again, for clarifying all this, for all the work you do in this field as well. We really appreciate you. We appreciate you bringing this information to us in such a clear, easy to understand way. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be able to join. Well, we really appreciate it. And we look forward to maybe having the session again next year. Yeah, we'll be coming from Chicago this time next year. That's right. Well, thank you so much. And I'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LACNETS podcast. Go to our website, lacnets.org forward slash podcast for episode transcripts and resources. We want to thank our podcast supporters, Ipsin, ITM, Advanced Accelerator Applications, Crenetics, and Tercera Therapeutics. For more information about neuroendocrine cancer, go to www.lacnets.org. LACNETS depends on donations to bring you programs such as this podcast please consider making a donation at lacnets.org forward slash donate.